Hey, how's it going? Welcome to the James McDonald Podcast, where we say love to live to love. That's our focus, that's our passion, and we invite you to let God's Word have that impact in your life right now. Here's Pastor James. Open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 26. While you're turning there, uh, let me uh, read a verse of Scripture to you. Acts 13.38 says this, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus Christ, through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything. I mean, (laughs) that's the Word of God. Just think about that for a minute. Through Jesus Christ, everyone, got to believe, got to believe in Him. If you do, through Him, everyone who believes is freed from everything. Now, that's not some uh, kind of, you know, sort of hippie, ethereal, ecological, free, we're free, it's a concept. No, no, this is not drug-induced, okay? Uh, This is a reality. Uh, He whom uh, the Son sets free is free indeed. And, And Christ is in the process of setting His children. Jesus didn't just rise from the dead for your justification. He rose to set us free from specific things that enslave us. Now, Scholars and sinners agree that the top three enslavements are uh, money, uh, sex, and power. If the Lord gives me strength, I'd like to do a series on each of those uh, in the years ahead. Um, Today we're beginning a a long-anticipated series uh, about money. Sad reality is is that... uh, Most North Americans and many of the followers of Jesus Christ, though forgiven, are still in financial bondage. They say that uh, the average North American has between seven and eight thousand dollars of consumer debt. That's not like a mortgage or something. That's like um, I thought if I had those pair of shoes, I I I thought if if we 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 got an upgrade on the cruise to the better cabin, I they 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 bought things they couldn't afford to oppress people they don't even care about, and now they're living under the debt, and that's the average North American. If you take out the, we don't have no consumer debt. I, I hope you cut up your card if you don't pay your credit bar, card this month in total, throw it in the garbage, never use it again. Maybe you could just go home right now. People are in bondage to believing that things can give them what only Christ can give them, and he wants to set you free from that. If you extract the people that don't have any consumer debt from that statistic, the average uh, North American that has consumer debt has over $15,000 of it. So, um, a lot of bondage. And uh, I've been praying, praying, praying that during the months of April and May, I'm not responsible for the people in California or the church down the street, but I care deeply, and my wife and I are giving our lives to the people in this church, and it grieves me to think that people that worship here every weekend, people who call this their church home, are living in financial bondage. 
It's, it's dividing families. It's destroying marriages. All in favor of freedom? That's where we're going. That's what Christ came out of the tomb for. I think we're on the right subject. Let's get real specific. Not, oh, we're free, we're free. Free from what? We're going to be free from financial bondage with God's help from God's Word. Let's take a moment and pray together. Father, we uh, look to you now because we don't believe that a uh, man on a platform seeking to be persuasive can change what has so long ensnared so many hearts. We believe, though, that your truth Truth sets free. And so we ask now that you would cause us to be in a place of unusual, maybe in our lives, maybe unparalleled submission to your truth, where, where we have thought that a path was, was best and have found out that it was bondage. We pray that you would set our feet on a better path, the path to freedom and joy that is found in you alone. Christ, this is what you rose for. Take us to those victories, we pray in your precious name. Amen. All right. So, um, Matthew 26 is where we are. And uh, just three main uh, thoughts sort of to lay a foundation. The first, uh, the series is called God's Money. How do you like that? It's so harvest, right? It's like, I wonder what that'll be about. (laughs) It's so subtle. It's God's money. All... Uh, blessing flows from the realization, like, well, if I give God God's part, God doesn't have a part, yo. It's his money. Everything that I have, everything that I am, all that I hope for, turn to your neighbor and say, it's all God's. It's all God's. If you decide to go on a vacation, you should go on a vacation because you believe that God will be honored in the outcome of that rest in your life. Every decision we make, and we, I've not done that perfectly, but I can tell you this, I believe this so strongly, every decision we make financially is a vertical decision. That's why the first message in the God's Money series is called uh, View It Vertically. Everything good for you financially flows from this first initial decision. I'm going to look at money uh, vertically. In order to get us to that place, we're going to have three main points here as a foundation. And uh, here's the first one. Uh, money's a test. You just got to get that. Money is a test. Whatever you have, uh, God has given it to you as a test, as a test of where your loyalty is, as a test of where your allegiance is, as a test of where your heart is. Jesus said where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And money should not be your greatest treasure. To help us study that a little bit, we're going to Uh, look at some lives around the passion of Christ, around the empty tomb. Start with this. Money's a test. It's what you do with it. And and let's, let's look at the life of Judas. I find it very compelling that during the passion, as Christ led the Last Supper, as he prayed and sweat drops of blood in Gethsemane, as he experienced the betrayal and the denial as he experienced the trial and the scourging and the cross and his own death and resurrection, around that were two people I'm going to show you right now. The first one is Judas, and everything that was happening in their lives was flowing from how they viewed money. How many of your decisions are flowing from how you view money? 
Here's Judas, Matthew 26, verse 14. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot. That's just a condensing of Ish Kirioth, which means man from Kirioth, a city in southern Judah. A man whose name was Judas Iscariot. He was one of the 12 disciples. And what's crazy is when you read through the Gospels, they're always listing the disciples, you know. And there was Peter, and usually they list their name and then a kind of a relational connection of some kind. There was a Peter and his brother Andrew. There was James and John, the sons of Zebedee. But always at the end of the list, and always with this descriptor, last guy and Judas. There's supposed to be a reaction to that. Ready? Wait, 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 wait. And Judas, who betrayed him. The reason why they focus on that betrayal, see it here in the text, Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? I mean, how twisted is that? How much? How much pain flows from how much? Consumed with, addicted to, idolatry of money. How much will you give him if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. From that moment, he sought an opportunity to, what's it say? From that moment, he sought, from what moment? From the moment he got the money in his hands, he sought an opportunity to, say it, to betray him. Now, look at nothing is more perverse than betrayal. You, you can, you can, you know, go through a bad season in a relationship. You can even have to establish some boundaries. You can come to the place where you need to back off a bit from a person. Betrayal is never justified. Say never. To take a relationship, someone for whom you could have said, I'm for you. I'm for you. And to turn and say, I, I used to wish you good. Now I wish you evil. That's betrayal. It's the worst relational sin there is. It's just as twisted as it can get. And it's, if you've ever been betrayed, it's crushing. To make matters worse, uh, he's going to uh, betray now uh, Jesus. How does he betray him? Tell me, with a, with a kiss. He's going to betray him with a kiss. Now, uh, I can't act this out the way I did uh, yesterday, I might, Kathy was in the service and she's singing in the Rolling Meadows choir, but I, I had her come up on stage and it was just, you know, I just don't want to miss those opportunities and just got a kiss in front of everybody and it was, you know, I, I said in the service, to be continued. And 30 years, I, I love, 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 love my wife. And uh, I can't really pull that off here. I love all of you, but I, I can't see a single person that I would... What I'm saying is, is that that's a very, very personal, tender, precious, vulnerable thing. Correct? How twisted to betray Jesus, say it with a, with a kiss. You say, okay, so the guy was messed up, but I, I don't see how you can say he had financial problems. All right, well, let me just uh, help you with that a little bit. Um, according to John 13, you can look in the Gospel of John. We love going there every chance we get, right? According to John 13, 29, uh, Jesus was uh, given charge over the disciples' purse. 
uh, the operating budget. And, and he kept the purse and he uh, bought food and managed all of it. Look at John chapter 12, uh, where it says that uh, Mary, the sinful woman who became Jesus' close friend, we believe, uh, took a pound, John 12, 3, took a pound of expensive ointment, um, anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Verse 4. Ready with your response again. But Judas, one of his disciples who was about to betray, they just can't even say the guy's name without saying this. It's so like, he did what? Who was about to betray him. So Judas is watching this. He's got in charge of the purse. And, and she's taking this expensive perfume and, and, and honoring Jesus with the best she had to give. Judas was like, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Usually you can tell it was hers. It wasn't his, it was hers. Usually you can tell a person who's in bondage to finances by, by, uh, by their reaction to, I can't believe the government, I can't believe my sister, I can't believe, and they're just so, what, really, are you okay? Are you okay? They're just so worked up about stuff. It's not even your responsibility, but there's something going on inside there uh, that isn't very healthy. One of our elders uh, has, for probably 10 or 15 years, has said, if anyone ever asks me about the finances of the church, the first thing I ask them is, do you tithe? He said, without exception, the people that are the most worked up are not living in victory themselves in what the Bible says about money. Interesting observation. So, Judas is melting down here. And then we get the reason, verse 6, John 12, 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. So he wasn't just in charge of the money, and he just wasn't just worked up about what other people were spending money on. He, he was actually skimming. He was funny numbers, the purse. And, and he, was, he, was, so he probably thought to himself, well, we could have sold that. He wasn't going to give the money to the poor. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charged the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. It's awesome in the Bible because you always get to find out, you know, why, why do you say that? Well, here's why. Sometimes we, we're not really sure why people say and do the things they do. Judas was in bondage uh, to money. Uh, he's just in bondage to it. The problem, uh, so then if, if you need any more evidence, when uh, it says in the beginning of Matthew 27, uh, verse 3, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he's like, I didn't think they were going to kill him. He changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and, 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 so, and saying to them, I betrayed innocent blood. And they're like, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And he took the 30 pieces of silver and he said, he throws it down. Now just think about the reaction of this. He betrays Jesus for the money. When he doesn't get what he wanted from the money, he comes back to them and bitterly throws. It. <laughs> um, let's just have interpretation by voting. All in favor of Judas has a money problem? Okay, he's got a money problem. Now, here's what you got to understand it wasn't the amount, it wasn't the fact that it was money. He viewed money horizontally. 
as something to use to advantage himself, as something that he could buy and barter and bargain and trade over to improve and increase. And when he didn't get what he wanted out of it, he despised what he had to have. How many people have spent their lives acquiring things that they came to despise when they realized what they lost to get what they had to have? I want you to do something personal. Everybody, uh, just reach in somewhere and, and uh, dig your wallet out. Ladies, grab your purse and get your wallet out of there. I want you to do that right now. I'm not going to ask you to give anything, but I want you to hold on to your wallet right now, kind of like a symbol of what you have. Just kind of hold on to it. And uh, I, didn't, uh, I didn't bring my wallet, so let me... <laughs> You're going to have... I, I don't like to have stuff in my pockets when I'm preaching. So you're going to have to just imagine this. But the rest of us, let's get our wallet. You, you may or uh, may not get this back. And um, Go ahead and get hold of your wallet. You got something you can kind of hold on to? Now, here's what I want to say to you. I love you, and, and I want to just tell you this. This is a test. Okay? Money's a test. So what's the test about? I'll give you some real personal things. First of all, money's a test of your work ethic. All right? And, and you go, I don't like that. I, so, I'm not saying in every instance. I know people go through hard times. But ge- everyone say, generally speaking. Generally speaking, if your wallet is empty, if your bills are more than you, look first at your work ethic. How hard do you work? How hard do you really work? How hard did you work in your 20s? How hard did you work in your 30s? A lot of people show up later in life resenting what others have. How hard do you work? That's the first thing. It's a test of your work ethic. You say, well, I think I work pretty hard. I've made made a lot. But your wallet's empty because, second test, it's a test of your self-control. You will never be living in victory financially until you spend less than you make. Live on less than you make. Some of you have been living like the U.S. government on more than you make, more than you make, more than you make for years or decades. It's a test of your self-control. You say, well, actually, I got got, got plenty of, and you're holding it right now. It's like, I got plenty, actually. All right? It's a test of your integrity. How did you get what you have? Did you cut corners? Did you withhold taxes? Did you withhold tithe? What belongs to the government? What be- render under Caesar that which is Caesar's, render under God that which is God's. Did you sell people stuff they, they, they didn't need? Did you uh, cut corners and twist the truth to get the deal? It's a test of your integrity. You say, well, I think I've done everything honestly and I still have plenty, okay? It's a test of your love for people. Can you point to people that you've helped? No one knows. You didn't get a tax deduction. You just helped people. It's a test of your love for people. And lastly, it's a test of your love for God. Okay? Everyone, hold it up. Hold up your wallet. Go ahead and hold it up. Hold it up and lift your voice up and say, it's a test. Say it. It's a test. All right? That's what money is. It's a neutral. It's not good or bad. It's what you do with it. The problem wasn't the 30 pieces of silver. It's what he did it for and what he did with it. Somebody, somebody say, you got a positive example? Oh, I love you. I do, actually. And right around the same time, right in the same gospel, if you look, you're going to see this. Money isn't just a test. It's a testimony. 
It's what you do with it. It's what you do with it. We're going to look now at Joseph, not the Joseph of Egypt and, and, and uh, famine, uh, not, not the Joseph uh, married to the mother of Jesus, but a different Joseph, a Joseph of, look at Matthew 27, uh, 57, after Jesus died, after they took him down from the cross. Matthew 27, 57, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea, that probably is Ha-Ramathea. Ramathea is a place, Ha means the, is the uh, direct or the definite article, the Ramathea. It's a suburb of uh, Jerusalem. And, and uh, there came a man, a rich man, maybe this was a wealthy suburb, We'd, we're not sure. Um, his name was Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. Actually, we learn uh, in uh, John uh, 19, 38 that he was a secret disciple. Um, he, was a really, he was like Nicodemus who had to come to Jesus by night for fear of the Jews. Joseph of Arimathea was also fearful of the implications of it being known. A rich person sometimes has a lot to lose. They could be more political, more careful, and he didn't want to risk. But what's also interesting is, is that the Holy Spirit could get to him and convict him because I think he must have felt ashamed about his private following of Jesus because in Luke 23, 51, it says that when they condemned Jesus to death, that Joseph of Arimathea did not consent to the decision of the council. He's like, that's not right. This isn't right what's happening here. And he must have been so grieved at his inability to reverse the decision as Jesus was crucified and died that when they took him down off the cross, this rich man... Uh, went uh, to Pilate. Now, Pilate was the one who had condemned Jesus to death, but it says here that he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Joseph risked a lot by asking for the body of Jesus from the person who had just condemned him to die, and all uh, Pilate wanted was peace. So I like the fact that his position, his wealth, was not insulating his heart from doing the right thing. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb. That's kind of a big deal, a little background uh, there. Um, uh, a tomb uh, in uh, biblical times was a, uh, actually a room uh, carved into a rock. And uh, on the interior walls, uh, we've been to the garden tomb, we'll be there about a month again where they believe that Jesus was buried. And here's a picture from the inside of that tomb, these little shelves this is right from inside the garden tomb. We're going to go right there. And those are called loculi. They're little shelves on the wall uh, inside of the tomb. And what they would do is they would take the person, wrap them in a linen cloth, lay them there, and then they would leave them there for several years. Uh, but a tomb belonged to a family. They were so expensive and so hard to come by and they so wanted to honor the previous generation that they would leave them there on that shelf for years. And then when the son died, when the grandson died, the grandparents uh, now collapsed, remains would be taken up and there'd be a pile of bones often in the middle of the room and then generations would go by. So likely Joseph was a first generation wealthy person because no one had ever been buried in this tomb. The, per, the first person who was to go in there, and he paid a lot of money for this, the first person to go in there was whom? 
For, it was for himself, though. He, he was going to use it for himself. That was his plan. But now um, it shows uh, humility. It shows a generosity. It shows a refusal to be bound by uh, appearance. It was a very good testimony. A very public statement of generosity. Money is a test. Uh, money is a testimony. And... Uh, it's so important that we keep this in mind. I, uh, I confess to a certain um, nervousness about uh, wading into the subject of money. Um, so many uh, people have so many thoughts about it. And part of the reason is, is that uh, the body of Christ is swimming in an ocean of viewpoints about money. And, and every ship that goes by has a different preacher with a different uh, set of teachings and, and, and honestly, so often just little isolated parts of what the Bible says. Uh, the two main categories that I would divide these into, I've talked about them before, uh, would be, uh, first of all, um, uh, poverty. Uh, poverty theology is the idea that money is a danger. Money's dangerous. And there is a lot of warnings, by the way. Everyone say money's dangerous. Money's dangerous, for sure it is. But they get so focused on that 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 gets to money's a danger, so you should renounce it. And the more godly you are, the less you want to do with uh, money. Uh, the other extreme would be uh, uh, prosperity. And uh, prosperity is the idea, uh, the opposite extreme is, is that money is a blessing. And uh, money's dangerous, but it's not evil. And it's uh, loving it is evil, but it's not evil itself. It's a neutral, it's what you do with it. And in the prosperity theology, they're like, money's a blessing and you should pursue it. Well, money isn't necessarily a blessing. You may have a financial uh, success and it's a judgment on what you've done. It's not automatically a blessing. It's a neutral. It's what you do with it, what you do with it. It's a tool. It's a testimony. Now, these two views of, of uh, poverty and uh, prosperity um, are, are not new. If you would go back through church history, you would find that historically the poverty position was called monasticism. And monasticism was the idea that um, uh, matter is evil, things are evil, um, um, anything material is evil, and to be spiritual, to get to a higher plane in Christianity, you need to uh, renounce things that are physical and pursue uh, what is uh, spiritual. Um, that's monasticism. And uh, the idea was, was if you got a pro in monasticism, if you've got a problem with shooting your mouth off, this will help. Don't talk for a year. That's monasticism. If you've got a problem with lust, they would, some of them would voluntarily submit themselves for castration, which by the way, or, or celibacy, a vow of celibacy, and, which doesn't solve the problem, obviously. If, if you have a problem with, with material things, or this will help, live in this room with a bench and no mattress with stone walls, that'll help you. That's monasticism, a radical rejection of the physical to get a higher plane in the spiritual. Um, in its opposite, a prosperity uh, through the centuries has been honestly uh, exemplified by the Vatican, uh, by the papacy, 
So while monasticism was rejecting everything material, they were building the Sistine Chapel and, and painting the ceilings. They, uh, I studied a statistic this week that said that uh, uh, the Vatican has uh, greater wealth than the five largest U.S. corporations put together. And, and, and so they would amass wealth and say it's proof of God's blessing. And, and they would reject uh, material things and say it's the way to get closer to God. Now, uh, both of those extremes are represented. Uh, and, and frankly, I uh, personally am so uh, not on the prosperity thing uh, that I'm, I, I'm not even going to put any pictures of anyone up there because I just don't want to even draw your attention to that. Um, that's not what we believe here at Harvest. I do believe that God rewards the giver, but, but prosperity theology gets into a lot of other problematic things. That's not us. That's not what we believe. You can find a church like that. That's not here. As preachers are like, it's, it's dangerous. Get it out of your hands. It's a, it's a blessing. Go after it. There is so much that is missing, and sadly, uh, my lack, my uh, neglect, um, which I'm seeking to correct and um, would just ask for your grace in that, this is such a big subject. And Jesus, Jesus said more about money than he said about heaven and hell put together. Not because it's the most important subject, but because until God gets hold of a man's wallet, he can hardly get anything else. Where your treasure is, Jesus said, that's where your heart is. And so, um, but we need to do a lot more than extract your hoarding. We need to uh, teach all that the Bible says uh, about this matter. And uh, sadly, I've had to look outside of pastors uh, to find a more balanced uh, understanding. And uh, we're going to be closing every one of these series, including today, with a little video vignette. Um, uh, some of them are recorded by someone I'm going to introduce to you in a moment and then in the weeks to come uh, Ron Blue who's one of the uh, leading uh, Christians in the matter of finances for the last 40 years uh, Ron Blue uh, who wrote Managing Your Money and, and uh, I spent a whole day with him uh, in the past couple of months just reviewing my finances personally and uh, he has a thing now called Kingdom Advisors and, and he is brilliant in this matter of all that the Bible says about money. Now also, uh, some of you, many of you have heard of Dave Ramsey. And Dave Ramsey is recording a couple of specific video vignettes for our church. And we're really thankful for these good men and, and their, their thorough, extensive biblical uh, teaching. And uh, we're going to seek to be uh, in some small way as faithful as they have been and give a thorough uh, overview of all that the Bible says about money. So, a last thing, and uh, we're going to go. Money is a test. It's what you do with it. Money is a testimony. It's what you do with it. Lastly, money is a tool. Money is a tool. It's what you do with it. Turn, everybody say, it's what you do with it. It's what you do with it. It's a test. It's a testimony. It's a tool. It's a neutral. Here's the best biblical word that I can find. Uh, for money, it's the word steward. 1 Corinthians 4, 2 says, moreover, it is required uh, that uh, we be found uh, faithful as stewards, that what God gives, he wants stewarded. Now, if you want a good definition of a steward, here's what it is. A steward owns nothing. Uh, God is the owner. That's a great sentence to say that. Say, God's the owner. 
God's the owner, and what he gives to us, your house, your car, your finances, your job, your family, your wife, your children, you're a steward. You own nothing. It's all been given to you, and you're going to answer someday to the owner. He's coming back, and he's going to be, okay, what up with my stuff? Something like that. You get the point? All right. And he wants to know what you did with his stuff. And, and it's, so, it's so serious. I don't think that we can properly understand um, our view of finances, though, without uh, taking a look at our own history. And we're going to ask you to write your financial testimony. I want to give mine uh, just briefly. Um, I, your home of origin is a lot of the way. It's hard to view money vertically until you look back at the way that your parents viewed money. And... Uh, my mom was pulled out of ninth grade uh, because her family needed her to work to support the family. She never finished high school. But my, my mom was an entrepreneur. She started and, and built and sold several businesses. She wanted a return. She was exacting. And, and I'm, I'm uh, not unlike that. Uh, my dad grew up on a farm. Uh, he was a school teacher who didn't make a lot, but he worked really hard in the summers and extra jobs to provide uh, for our family. I had to uh, work my way through college. My college wasn't paid for. I went to school all day. I went to uh, worked as a security guard all night in college. I've been working since I can remember. When I was eight years old, I had a paper route. When I was 10 years old, I sold cards door to door. I've always, always worked, 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 worked. My mom would say Sherwood's no, that's her maiden name. My middle name is James Sherwood. My mom would say Sherwood's know how to work. And, and I remember my first experiences in ministry, I worked with, honestly, uh, some pastors that didn't know how to work, didn't know how to manage their finances. They were a burden uh, to the church. When Kathy and I started Harvest, I mean, 23, 24 years ago, I, I was working at a church, or 27, 28 years ago, I was working at a church. I owned a house when I was 24. The pastor of the church was in his late 50s. He didn't own a house. And uh, early in the days at Harvest, I, I bought and sold houses. Rick and Lynn lived in a house that uh, I bought and sold to them, and that was kind of the start. And then I would buy things and sell things on the side. Why? Because I never wanted to be a burden to the church. And, and uh, a lot of the way that I think about things is flowing out of that. The strengths of it, the weaknesses of it. We're going to close every service with a video. Um, that's my story. We want you to write yours. Watch this. Well, it's finally here. The long-awaited, uh, much-anticipated, and honestly, much-needed study uh, on money. What does the Bible say about money? Well, today we've got it started. Uh, it's God's money. Uh, it all belongs to Him. It's just a neutral. It's just a tool. It all comes down to what do you do with the money, God's money, that He's entrusted to you. So that's why I'm excited to uh, introduce to you a new uh, but very dear friend. This is Brian Scheffler. And uh, Brian, thanks for agreeing to close each one of these messages with us. Mm -hmm. If I was sitting where our listeners are sitting right now, our people, I think that they were probably wanting to know, well, who's Brian Scheffler and why is he going to be talking to me about my finances? Give us a little bit of your background in the financial services industry. Yeah, well, first of all, James, it's just an honor to come alongside you guys and the whole uh, family at Harvest and journey with you on these seven weeks. We're really praying with you and trusting that God's going to create some uh, terrific breakthroughs in this area for people. 
I've spent most of my 25 years of my career in the area of personal financial uh, services and um, spent a good amount of time on Wall Street and then moved back to Chicago okay. and did my MBA in finance there. University of Chicago? Right, yep, nice. just down on the south side. Yep. And uh, But soon thereafter, God really changed my heart relative to the purpose of my career. And so I got really act more actively involved in helping counsel people in this area of biblical stewardship and uh, privileged to work at one of the uh, largest independent advisory firms in the country. And there our whole goal is to have uh, people enjoy greater peace of mind in this area of finances. Okay. Well, as my friend Ron Blue, who we're going to meet later on, has told me, there's a lot of Christians giving financial counsel, but it's not Christ's counsel. It's not biblical counsel. I think what our people want to know is not just your background in finances, but um, how has the Lord been at work in your life as you've wrestled with the overlap between sound financial practice and what the scriptures actually say? Yeah, I sure learned a lot of lessons uh, in my time before coming to Ronald Bloom Company. And uh, for the last 13 years, I've spent almost exclusively helping people get greater peace of mind in this area in their lives by specifically following biblical principles in this area of personal finance. Our idea and your idea has been that we would end each one of these sessions with what we're calling a diagnostic. Right. But I gotta, I gotta tell you, that word doesn't feel great to me. It sounds a little like going to the dentist. Is it? Is it gonna be like that? Well, it really depends on what your practices have been. Have you been flossing? Have you been brushing? Things like that. Right. Okay. So talk about the uh, diagnostic you've designed for week one. Sure. Well, the, uh, the way we think about money has a lot to do with how our um, backgrounds affected that. And a lot of times the way we process our thinking about money has to do with our family of origin and how we were raised, the way our parents handled money, also how we're uh, exposed to it in the media, things we read how we observe peers using it and that yeah. kind of thing. So we just thought it would be a great idea just to give an, give an easy one off the front end of people just telling their personal story, just writing it out. Fantastic. That would include things about their background with it, kind of where they are currently, yeah. and also how they're hopeful they can progress. Welcome, Brian. I'm excited to be serving the Lord with you. It's a pleasure. Thank you for the help that you've given us. Thank you for your willingness to serve our church and uh, God's money. Next time we're together, we're going to be talking about making it honestly. So I hope that you've been really encouraged today through this clear teaching from God's Word. I just want to thank you from the whole team for listening to the James McDonald podcast, where the learning is for loving, loving God and for loving others more and more until we see him face to face. Thank you for standing with us. Your prayerful support is our lifeline to continue this gospel partnership, and it makes podcasts like these possible. If you're not part of a vibrant, life-giving gospel church, check out this new alternative. It's called the Home Church Network. You can get it at homechurchnetwork.global. All the ministry information, Bible teaching, and, and resources are there, and also at jamesmcdonaldministries.org. Hey, thank you again for listening.